Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. We are doing a study of the Christian scriptures, the Bible. We've looked at its inspiration, its consistency, and now we want to address some issues about its history. That is, while we may pick up a Bible today and there are many versions available to us, how do we know that what we have today reflects what was originally written, especially since some of the books in this Bible were written many thousands of years ago? How do we know also that, that there aren't other books that should be included in this Bible but are not? There are other books that were written in ancient times, but Christians do not accept them as being a part of the Scriptures. Why not? Unfortunately, we live in a day where many people uh, will utilize the Internet, will utilize media uh, to present very dubious theories about writings from the past and saying that if we would just allow this to, to speak with equal authority of the Bible, then we'd see that, that uh, Christianity needs to be completely different than it has been historically. For example, uh, some of you may have uh, heard of a film produced in the United States recently called The Da Vinci Code where a, a fiction writer, and it is a work of fiction, in fact, from a historical perspective, it is some of the worst fiction ever penned, but uh, all these theories are propounded in the book, which was a, a bestseller, and the film that was made, that historically have no basis whatsoever. Many things are said that are the exact opposite of the documented reality, but sadly, because so few people know almost anything about the history of the church. They just accept what is being said as if it, it has some kind of validity to it. Unfortunately, because people don't study the history of the Christian church, the history of the Bible, they're very liable to being deceived by people who come along and, and can make what sounds like a convincing case. For example, it is very common for people to point out to Christians that other books were written in the history of the church that are not found in the pages of Scripture. Uh, for example, my own daughter is in college right now, and she just had a class with a professor who very much detests the Christian faith. And he was very proud to uh, point out to her in class that, well, we don't know who wrote the Gospels, for example, and, and there are all these other books that, uh, that were in consideration. If you just look at, for example, the Gospel of Thomas or, or these other works, we would see a completely different view of Jesus. Now, my daughter grew up in a rather unusual household with a father like me, and so she was aware of these issues, but many people going into the university educational system in their churches, they've never heard about the other books that were written uh, shortly after the time in the New Testament. They don't know anything about a religion called Gnosticism that I'll be describing to you a little bit later. And so these, these presentations can be very troubling. Why wasn't I told about these things? And why aren't these books a part of the New Testament? And so we need to examine these works and and I, in fact, I would encourage people, if you have the opportunity, to even read them for yourself. Because from my perspective, they are so different than what we have in the New Testament that their, their true nature stands out uh, almost immediately upon being examined. Many of those who promote these particular kinds of works uh, don't actually get very in-depth in analyzing what these, these works actually say. Now, in the Old Testament, there were... After, after the Old Testament was completed and, and, and finished, Malachi has finished, the Jews continued to write books. They just did not consider them to be scriptural books. 
And so there are books written during that period of time, after Malachi, before the coming of Christ. And they have varying levels of usefulness to us. Some of them are historical works. But they are, in, es in essence, called the Old Testament Apocrypha. Now, Apocrypha means hidden. And it's not that these books were hidden. It's just that they are not included in the canon of the Old Testament. They can be useful to us. They can tell us about the history of the Jewish people up to the time of Christ. Uh, but they are not considered to be scripture by evangelical Protestants. There is also what is called a New Testament Apocrypha. Most people have never heard of this. What are we referring to? Well, very shortly after the writing of the New Testament, Christians likewise wrote letters. Uh, they wrote books. And those, some of those books were considered to be very, very important because they were written by people who knew the apostles. They were written in those early generations, very close to the time of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And so there are certain books that were considered authoritative by certain groups for a period of time, but were never accepted as canon scripture, as fully inspired scripture by the entirety of the church. What do I refer to? Well, for example... Very early on, uh, right around the, the beginning of the second century, remember, uh, Jesus dies and is buried and is resurrected somewhere around 30 A.D., 30 to 33 A.D., somewhere in this particular time range. And, and then you have the Gospels being written from about 45 to about 65. Some people would put them much later than that. I don't see any reason to do that. You have Paul's epistles being written in the 40s and 50s, maybe in the early 60s. The vast majority of the New Testament being written probably before A.D. 70. Some people would put the Gospel of John as late as the 90s. Uh, but everything is in that first century after the birth of Christ. And right toward the end of that first century, uh, we have a situation arising where the church in Corinth, the same church to which Paul wrote two epistles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, basically they kicked out all their leaders. There was a rebellion, shall we say, amongst the people in the church. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that that church had a lot of problems from the very start. And so the church at Rome sent a letter to the church at Corinth rebuking them for kicking out their leaders. That letter today is known as First Clement or Clement's Epistle to the Corinthians. The reason it's called that is a traditional reason. There is no name attached to it. And in fact, it is simply written from the elders at the church of Rome to the people of Corinth. But it's an important letter because it is soaked in the writings, for example, of the Apostle Paul. It clearly shows that these writings did not come hundreds of years later, that the writings of the New Testament are first century writings. And why is this important? Well, a number of reasons. There are many who would say that the New Testament documents have been grossly corrupted, that Paul, for example, in essence, invented the Christian faith that he came up with the idea of the crucifixion, he came up with the idea of the resurrection, and that, that we really cannot trust anything that Paul said and that, and that many other writings in the New Testament actually come from a much later time period. But the fact is, there really is no reason to believe that any of the New Testament documents come from any time period other than right there in the first century. And what that means is they are being written during the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses. Remember what Luke said in Luke chapter 1. He talked about those who were eyewitnesses of these events. There were many, many people who saw the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
and they didn't all just disappear after the resurrection. They were eyewitnesses, and their ministry is extremely important because all the theories that people present about how Paul or the, the growing church changed everything of Jesus' teachings, that Jesus was actually just a very... Uh, uh, humble person who never said anything about himself. He never viewed himself as the son of God. He never presented any of the teachings we have in the New Testament. And then what you have is these, these people perverting his message over time. There's a major problem with that. And that is there were eyewitnesses to these events who continued to live for many decades after the events themselves. And they were a part of the Christian church. If someone came along and, and, and said, well, you know, one day Jesus said such and so. These eyewitnesses would go, well, I was there. He never said that. You see, the idea that this message of Jesus could be so easily changed without a word of, of protest from those who were there, a word of protest from those who had actually been there and seen these things and had been preaching about these things and teaching about these things consistently for years makes absolutely no sense. The idea that wholesale perversion could take place and that we have no evidence of it. Somehow the true followers of Jesus, Paul and these people come along, they change the whole Christian faith, and the true followers of Jesus never say a word. They never raise, they never raise an objection. They never write a book saying, no, this isn't how it happened. And that makes no sense whatsoever. And so you see, when we look at what we know comes from the first century, we have a consistent teaching on the part of all of those documents concerning who Jesus was, what he did, and really you can summarize all of that by simply looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul summarizes the faith. He says that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, he was seen by, by the apostles, by more than 500 brethren at one time. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the gospel, that is the consistent message of all of the sources that come from the first century. And when we then go outside the New Testament, we discover that this is the case as well in regards to non-New Testament writings. For example, Clement's epistle to the Corinthians. What do we find in that? Do we find some different teaching? No, we find it soaked in the New Testament teachings. We find it quoting from, from Paul. We find it quoting from other writers of the New Testament. Even at that early period, even in those first decades, when these books would still be being distributed uh, across the known world, Clement is quoting from these books as Scripture, as authoritative Scripture already. This is vitally important. And Clement is not the only one. Clement is not the only writing that does this. We have others, but it is vitally important to recognize that when we just stand back and ask ourselves the question, how do I know that the New Testament that has come to me accurately represents what happened in the first century? My response, my, my question to anyone who says it doesn't is, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? Whenever anyone starts propounding these theories about uh, the, the gospel being massively changed and radically altered, I go, where's your evidence? And almost always, if they offer any evidence at all, it's going to come from long after the time of the original events themselves. Normally, it's going to come from the second century, and it's going to come from a group, a religious group called the Gnostics, and we'll be taking a look at them a little bit later on. I want to give you just an example 
of uh, some of the, the deep theology that you find, for example, in Clement's epistle. Let me just read you a section so you have an idea of, of how consistent Clement's teaching is with that of the New Testament. Listen to these words. Therefore, all these were glorified and magnified, not because of themselves or through their own works or for the righteous deeds they performed, but by his will. And we also being called by his will in Christ Jesus are not justified by means of ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works, which we have done in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which the almighty God has justified all those believing from the beginning to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here in this very early writing, you have the, the repetition of the gospel and how a man is justified before God by faith, not by anything that he does, and that God declares him righteous because of that faith, not because of any works. Here in one of the earliest epistles written after the time of the New Testament. Another very early document is called the Didache. The Didache means the teaching of the Twelve. This is some people argue about exactly when to date it, and it's difficult to know exactly when to date it, but it's probably around the same time as Clement. It might be a little bit later. Uh, but this is a, is a summary of Christian teaching, and it talks about uh, how to, to, to do baptism and, and how Christians should behave and, and things like that. It's not overly doctrinal in content, but it's more of a very uh, practical outline as to what the Christian church is to look like. But again, it likewise recognizes the central teachings of the New Testament. It does not reflect to us some completely different kind of theology uh, there in the first century. One of my favorite of these early writings, and remember, none of these are inspired, but they are witnesses that talk to us about what was going on immediately after that first century and the fact that what Christians believe to this day was present right there in the earliest period of the Christian church itself. This isn't something that developed hundreds of years later. It's not like you had a completely different religion that existed for a period of time and then it got perverted and changed to almost its opposite. That simply is not what took place in history when we actually go to the documented sources and read them fairly, read them in their own context. An unknown Christian writer wrote to a man by the name of Diognetius. And again, when you listen to what he says, he emphasizes the centrality of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, justification by grace through faith. Jesus is the Son of God. All of these themes that define the Christian faith to this day found in the very earliest writings of the church. And of course, one of my favorite uh, sources is found in the epistles of a man by the name of Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop of the city of Antioch. And as you probably are aware, very early on, uh, the Christian faith ran afoul of the Roman Empire. What I mean by that, of course, is that the Roman Empire was developing a, a system of religious worship called Caesaropapism. And that is the, the emperor wanted to be considered the chief priest of all the religions of the Roman Empire. Obviously, Rome, as it conquered almost all of the area, in fact, did conquer all the area around the Mediterranean Sea, there were all sorts of religions under the Roman Empire. And to try to hold this extremely 
uh, varied group of people together, what Rome decided to do was to make the emperor uh, a part of each of the religions. And as long as you were willing to acknowledge the emperor, uh, Caesar, as a part of your religious worship, then your religious worship would be acceptable. And so what you would do is you would be required to take a pinch of incense and offer it upon the altar. And you were to say, Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. Well, think about that one for just a moment. Who could not ever say those words? Jewish people, of course, could never say Kaiser Kurios because they had only one true God and they could not give worship uh, to any human being. But who else could also not say Kaiser Kurios? The Christians. In fact, when you think about Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, when he defines the very Christian faith, he's, he defines on the basis of the confession that Jesus Kurios, Jesus is Lord. So if you say Jesus is Lord, you can't say Caesar is Lord. And so the Christian faith was banned. It was made a religio illicita, an illicit religion, an illegal religion. And so began the persecution of the Christian people from the middle of the first century until the year 313. So you have almost 300 years, a solid 250 years of imperial persecution of the Christian people. Now, it does not mean that that persecution was of the same kind and the same level all the time. It waxed and waned. It, got, it grew very strong, and it would, it would become peaceful for a period of time, depending on who the emperor was, who Caesar was. And it would also depend on where you were. You might have an individual in a particular part of the empire who was very uh, filled with hate toward Christianity, and so the persecution would be very great at that particular point in time. But then after he leaves or he dies, then the persecution might die off. But until 313... Under the Roman Empire, Christianity was an illegal religion. And that means Christians had to hide their scriptures. The Romans were constantly seeking to destroy the Christian scriptures. And we'll talk about that at a later point as well because that's very important. They were seeking to destroy the Christian scriptures, to destroy the Christian churches uh, that, that would be built during periods of peace. Then during periods of persecution, many of those churches would be destroyed. Many times Christian leaders would find themselves in prison they would find themselves uh, trying to run their churches by letters being written from prison even before their own martyrdom. I think of uh, uh, the martyr bishop of, uh, of Carthage at that point in the middle of the third century. And so Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was arrested for being a Christian. And as he was being taken to Rome to die as a martyr, he wrote letters to many of the major churches and when we read those letters, the letters of a man who knows he is going to die, who has served Jesus Christ for the vast majority of his adult life, he's an aged man, they are very special treasures for the Christian people today. And I've always found it fascinating that in those letters, Ignatius identifies Jesus as God, as the Son of God, over and over and over again, unashamedly, without even thinking there's anything unusual about it, because this was the common faith of the earliest Christians. And anyone who's going to say that that was not the common faith of the earliest Christians needs to find us some evidence 
from the first century of these other people who have a better claim to being the original followers of Jesus who taught otherwise. And the fact is, they're just not there. There is no reason to reject the consistent testimony of these works. So we have Ignatius's epistles to the churches. We have, we have the Didache. We have Clement. We have these early writings that are not a part of the New Testament, even though they might have been written very closely to the time of the New Testament. But these are orthodox writings. In other words, they are consistent with what we have in the New Testament. But we need to remember something. The New Testament itself tells us that there were false teachers even in the days of the apostles. When Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, he had to deal with a tremendously difficult issue there in the church. There were false teachers. There were people who were trying to overthrow the authority of the Apostle Paul for their own particular purposes and for their own particular teachings. But there were false teachers. The Apostle John writes an entire epistle, 1 John, and he talks about those who once were in the church. They may even have been leaders in the church. But he says they went out from us so it might be demonstrated they were not truly of us. There were difficulties even in those early days. And as we noted before, Paul warned that there would be those who would rise up from within the church itself, speaking perverse things and drawing people away and following after them, getting disciples to themselves. That's the very nature of what false teachers are like. And so if that was the case during the apostolic period, during the period where the apostles are ministering, we shouldn't be overly surprised that after that period of time, you also have false teachers in the church. And so there are other writings that begin to appear primarily in the second century. And it is in the second century that you have the rise of the greatest religious challenge to Christianity in all of history, at least in its early period. And it is a challenge that, interestingly enough, modern Western scholarship has, in essence, resurrected, has brought back as being one of the great challenges even to this day. We have in the second century the full blossoming of what's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. We see that an early form of Gnosticism was present in the world during the time of the writing of the apostles. How do we know this? Two things. We see that the Apostle Paul addresses concerns central to Gnosticism when he writes to the church at Colossae, and he warns them against people who would teach certain Gnostic elements. But we also see that the Apostle John, in all of his letters, is very, very, very concerned to emphasize the reality of the body of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ truly became a man. Why is that? Well, it's because of certain elements of Gnostic teaching. In fact, some of the strongest words, those found uh, in 1 John about the antichrists, those who stand opposed to Christ, these come within the context of this early development of Gnosticism. And so we find warnings about this in the New Testament, and then, of course, in the second century, Gnosticism becomes a full-blown religious attack upon the Christian faith. And for literally 200 years, the church is persecuted by Rome on the one hand, and it is dealing with this Gnostic crisis, this Gnostic attack on the other hand. And many of the writings that people use to attack the Christian faith this day come from the Gnostics. They were the enemies of the faith then, they remain the enemies of the faith today. 
And so it's vital for us, if we want to be able to give an answer to those who ask the, about the hope within us, we as Christians today need to understand what Gnosticism is about, and that's what we'll continue to do as we continue this study into the Christian Scriptures. Thank you very much.